You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading today is going to be from John 11, 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of his world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, 
supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for what an amazing story, amazing action that Jesus performed, an amazing story for us to see him clearly. Your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, so we pray that you would light the way for us this evening for your sake and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. may be seated. It's good to see many of you here this evening. I If I didn't get to meet you before the service began, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We have been going through, this is now the 24th week in the Gospel of John together, and we're getting into some really good stuff. I've been looking forward to this chapter, chapter 11, for a long time. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. But much of what I thought that I was going to say, much of what I thought that I was going to emphasize in this sermon this evening is not actually what I think that John is emphasizing. Uh, In studying this week, this chapter brought a ton of new questions for me and some pretty astounding answers in understanding Jesus. So I'm hopeful that that can be true for all of us this evening. It's a chapter about life and death, and literally, and depending on what you do with this chapter, it becomes a matter of life and death for us all. So tonight we'll see the death of Lazarus in a first movement, and then a second movement, the life of Jesus. But then lastly, and in an unbelievable twist of irony, the life of Jesus then brings the death of Jesus. We've got a whole lot to do tonight, so let's just go for it, shall we? The death of Lazarus. Two weeks ago, we saw at the end of chapter 10, a bookend reference to John the Baptist signifying the end of Jesus's public ministry. John the Baptist was at the top, he's at the bottom, and then we said that chapter 11 is transitioning now to the second half of the book, which is about Jesus's final move to Jerusalem. 
And even though this last final miracle, the greatest sign thus far in this entire book, uh, is very public, it is definitely the transition. We are moving now to the cross, and we'll see why at the end. Jesus has been up north where he received word that his friend Lazarus is sick. John tells us that Lazarus is the brother of Mary, the one who anointed his feet. We haven't actually seen that yet. We'll see that next week in chapter 12. And that Jesus loved Lazarus. We'll see next week that Mary clearly loves Jesus because of the way that she anoints his feet. In verse 5, John tells us that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. There's a whole lot of love in this entire book. It's just beginning to end, but John is really laying it on thick here at the very beginning of this chapter. Jesus' love for this particular family and their love for Jesus, which is why verse 6 is so surprising and very weird. Verse 6 starts, so, or therefore, pointing back to verse 5. Verse 5 saying, because Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Perhaps you heard Jason read that and you're trying to follow the logic of John. Because he loved this family, he stayed where he was. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Maybe Jesus is confused. He doesn't realize how serious the sickness is. After all, in verse 4, he says, this illness does not lead to death. Maybe he's just very confused. But John tells us later that in much of what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's like loading it and layering it with double meaning. And Jesus even tells them in verse 14 that Lazarus has died. He hasn't heard any new news or another messenger has come to tell them that he's died. He seems to have an omniscient knowledge of what's going on down south in Bethany. But we're given a hint then at what he means back in verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It, the sickness, is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We're immediately reminded of chapter 9 where Jesus said that the man's blindness was so that the works of God's could be displayed, but this seems to take it to a whole other level. He's going to allow a man to die and then to allow his entire family and in fact an entire village to mourn, to grieve for four whole days just to like prove a point about who he is. Like this seems to be kind of like, I don't know, like a twisted deity right? That is just going to allow all this sickness and suffering and pain just so that he can make, make, make a point? Seems to be kind of problematic. And if Jesus is some selfish and self-absorbed egomaniac, then yes, all of this is very problematic. But remember, he's going to allow this death. He's going to allow all of this pain for those that he loves because he loves them. How can this be? Well, remember from John 10, that Jesus has come to lead his sheep into a life of abundance, an abundant life of following him, the shepherd. He'll later tell his disciples in chapter 14 that he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. How will Jesus love those who love him? Well, he'll manifest himself to them. He'll make himself more clear to them. This is how he'll love them, by making himself clear to them. What is the most loving thing that Jesus could do for any human? Is it just to give 
all of us, like everything that we've always wanted? Is it to give us every job promotion and give us every sense of financial security, giving us a fairy tale marriage, uh, successful children, a peaceful home, just fulfilling our comfortable American dream? Is this the most loving thing that he could do for us? Keeping us healthy, curing us from every ailment and keeping us from death. And in that vein, is the most loving thing that Jesus can do answering even reasonable prayer requests? Perhaps in this case, just not allowing the premature death of someone that he loves. After all, it's not some sort of punishment from against like Martha and Mary that they've got like this, I think they've got like this idolatrous understanding of the family and they just want a happy life. And so Jesus is just going to rip that away from them to like show them. No, that's not what he's doing, but he does love them enough to not let them have anything less than himself. God has created us for joy, and he knows that the maximum level of joy to be found in the universe is in him. And other created things understand and enjoyed in their proper context can point us to our creator and can enhance our worship and joy in him, but too often a so-called happy and stress-free life can distract us. It can be like a sleeping potion of entertainment, of boredom and of death, perhaps a, a surfacely happy life, but lacking in grounded and rooted joy in knowing God. The most glorious reality in all of the universe. And if a firm and fixed vision of Jesus, a growing hope in God through Christ, and not just the things that he can give us, not just the things that he can do for us, if that is uh, the most loving thing that he could ever do for us, then yes, this begins to make sense. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, because he loved this family, because he wanted them to see. These folks still had a lacking understanding of who Jesus was, so he, in love, he needed to show them. Think about this. What are the most common prayer requests that make up your prayer life? While it's totally legitimate to bring our specific requests to God, like Martha and Mary did. Come quick. We need you to come save our brother. That's totally good and right. In fact, we're commanded to do this. Peter tells us in 1 Peter to bring our requests to God because he cares. He wants to hear. He cares for us. But which prayers might might God be answering with a very stark no in our lives so that he might give you himself rather than just the things that we think that we need for happiness and joy. God, please give me this job. God, please give me this spouse. Please give me these children. Please give me relief from this pain and sickness. All good things, difficult things that we struggle through and we ought to pray to God in faith that he might respond. But as I've shared with you before from Tim Keller, we can be sure that our prayers are answered in exactly the way that we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God does. If we knew everything that God knows that he can see from eternity past to eternity future, then we can rest confidently that this is the way. However he's answering my prayer right now, this is exactly the way I would want him to answer if I knew everything that he does. 
So help me, God, to measure your love for me, not in good circumstances, but in how clearly I'm seeing you and how you are showing me yourself. Help me to trust in whatever happens today or tomorrow or next year or the next decade so that you might be glorified. God, help me. Help me see you. Help me to see your wisdom and your goodness, your love and compassion. Oh God, be thou my vision. O Lord of my heart, help me to see. I trust you in however you're answering this prayer. So Jesus hangs out for two more days in the north so that he can teach and then show this family, show his disciples, show many other people who are there who he is and what they ought to think about life and death. So when he says, all right, boys, it's time. It's time to go down to Judea. The disciples are like, hold on, though. Remember what happened the last time we were down there. They tried to stone you. They seem to be thinking that Jesus is going south again, is going to be like him walking with like this sparking and flaming torch like through a pine forest that hasn't had any rain in a couple of years. He's just asking for it to ignite and to explode in his face. They're like, don't do it, man. Like, I know, I, I appreciate that you love this family, but it's not worth the risk. Lazarus is not worth it. But Jesus says in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? He's talking about his coming hour that we've seen John make continual reference to. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. We've seen over and over again the hour of his cross. And he knows when the time is coming. So he's like, look, like when you're out in the fields, you know you got 12 hours to work. Like the sun isn't going to unexpectedly set at like 4.30 in the afternoon. You, you can plan accordingly because you know what's going to happen. Fellas, look, it's not the sunset yet. I know my hour is coming. Sunset is coming, but not yet. So let's go. So verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He's saying what I'm going to do is as easy as it is to just rouse somebody from a nap. And then they're like, all right, well, come on. If, he, if he's just sleeping, perhaps they're even saying maybe he's in like unconsciously asleep. Maybe he's in a, like a, a minor coma or something. Then we don't need to go back down there. Like he's just going to wake up, right? But he tells them plainly, look, guys, I, I was apparently, you missed it. I was speaking with some double meaning here. Uh, he died. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. He's dead. Uh, but for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. This was the plan all along, to let him die so that you might see and believe. To which Thomas, and maybe doubting Thomas again, right? Since he's not seemingly uh, considering what Jesus had just said about the sunset of his hour, but yet still courageous Thomas here. He says, well, going back down to Jerusalem is going to explode in his face. He's going to die, but let's go with him so that we can die with him. That's a move of faith from the so-called doubting Thomas. But Jesus now goes to respond. He's responding now from the death of Lazarus now with a second movement in this chapter with his own life, the life of Jesus. We know that Jesus loves this family. We're not exactly sure who they are, but in the other gospels we see that this family and Jesus' family, they might have known each other for a long time. They seem to have been especially close, and yet Jesus' love seems to be questioned, seems to be doubted over and over and over again for this family. Three times in these next few verses, everyone is wondering what in the world Jesus was doing. 
Like, it's his fault that Lazarus is dead. Whether it's because of Jesus' laziness, he just didn't care about hurrying right down to Bethany. He didn't understand the situation, maybe, or his just lack of love for the family. Martha runs out first to meet him when she hears he's coming. And in verse 21, she says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When he gets to the village, Mary comes out of the house weeping. And in verse 32, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in verse 36, in seeing Jesus weeping, some of the Jews say, see how he loved him. But then, like countering that, some of them said, no. Apparently he didn't love him because could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? If he had really loved him, he would have kept him from dying. We'll see how Jesus will respond to all this in just a moment. But let's back it up first and first look at this monumental conversation that he has with Martha. In verse 20, when Martha heard that he was coming, she, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So even though she doesn't understand what Jesus was doing, she seems to be implying, you're late. What were you doing? She still has faith now that even though he's late, he still can do something. To which Jesus says, yeah, he's going to rise again. And likely through her tears, she says, yeah, I, I know that. I know. She understands the teaching of Jesus that We remember from John 5 and the rest of the Bible that at the end of all things, the the day of the Lord, people don't just continue on in some disembodied state where we just float around aimlessly in a spiritual world for eternity. But no, that every human being that has ever lived, their body will be resurrected and reunited with their soul for all eternity. As Jesus says in John 5, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. So Martha says, yeah, I know. I'm aware of all that. I know he's going to rise again at the end, the day of the Lord. But he responds to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha Do you believe this? And continuing with the so-called I am statements in John's gospel, he's beginning to ratchet it up. He said that he was the bread from heaven. He said he's the light of the world, the door to the sheep, the good shepherd. But now he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus wants to distract from Martha's right belief and understanding in some future resurrection and instead focus her belief in the right here and right now in himself. The reason for hope is not just some future and let's be honest kind of weird and I don't really understand this kind of future resurrection thing. The reason for hope is in him. And what's more, the only reason that the unknowable and kind of weird future resurrection is going to happen is because Jesus himself is the one that's going to make it happen. He is the resurrection. He is the Lord of heaven. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of life. And I'm standing right here in front of you looking in your eyeballs. Martha, look at me right here, right now, and trust me. Not just some future day of the Lord, but me. 
The day of the Lord is coming, but because of me. Trust me right here and right now. With the resurrection of your brother, yes, but trust me right here and right now with your own resurrection for yourself for eternity. And he's not just the future resurrection, but he says that he's the life. And I think that these things aren't totally the same thing here. I'm the resurrection and the life. He's not merely saying that the life that comes after the resurrection, he's that also, though I think that's in play. But read verses 25 and 26 again. It's kind of confusing. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So he's saying that someone will die, but then someone, if they believe in him, will not die. What's he talking about? He's saying that the person who is already enjoying this resurrection life on this side of death, in that sense, will never die. And this is something that we talked about from chapter 5 as well, that if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, if we are walking in darkness, in blindness, away from the Lord, and then Jesus comes and miraculously gives us life, gives us sight, turns us around, then there's this very real sense in which the kingdom of heaven has like overlapped this kingdom of the world. He has done something miraculous and given us resurrection life so that now for the rest of eternity we are walking in this direction. That he has begun eternity way back here when someone believes he begins eternity forever. And so for the rest of eternity, some of us for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes before we die or some of us for 10 decades of following Jesus, we have experienced eternity in all of those years that we've been trusting him. And so in that sense, this life that we are following him, following the good shepherd, this ordinary life that we experience apart from the resurrection life of Christ ought to just more and more ebb away. The life of Christ becomes more and more a reality. So in that sense, whoever lives, whoever believes in Christ and is experiencing his life will in that sense never die. Will never experience the death of being apart from him will just continue on in the eternal life that they've already been experiencing for however many years they've already been following him. Eternity begins now, the moment that you believe, the moment that he brings life. And to all this, Jesus asks Mary, do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. A real moment of personal and trusting faith, but she still, she still has not even the slightest idea, a, 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 a glimmer, but not the full picture of what he's talking about, who he is. So he keeps moving. And this is where he keeps encountering the same questioning of his power, of his love, the same, why weren't you here? Why didn't you do something? And all of this causes a deeply emotional response in him. Verse 33 when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he, he was deeply moved in his spirit. He was greatly troubled. Deeply moved, here's one word, and it's the same word as what happens to the pool at Siloam in chapter 5. It's stirred up. He is stirred up. He's deeply moved. And greatly troubled is the same word as like a snorting and agitated horse. He is stirred up and agitated. And I have always heard this section 
of, of John 11 preached, and I've even taught myself maybe dozens of times, even, either in a formal setting like this or just over coffee with someone else, that Jesus is so emotionally moved here, and he's even weeping because he's upset by the state of the world. That the world he created to experience life and joy is so corrupted by death and mourning that he himself is mourning that reality. People weren't meant to die. People weren't meant to mourn, but to rejoice. And so he's greatly, deeply moved and stirred up. And I think there's likely some truth in that. The fact that we have a Savior who can empathize with us, who has lived life as a human in a frail body. He experienced grief, a man of sorrows in a sad world. He experienced it all that should give us great comfort. This is not the world that Jesus created it, created it to be. And this is not the world that we are to put our hope and our comfort in. And Jesus acts as a very good model for us to weep with those who are weeping, to mourn and grieve with those who are mourning and grieving. So perhaps that's why he's weeping alongside his friends. But we know that he knows what he's about to do, right? In like 15 seconds, he's going to call Lazarus from the grave. He's, he's, I'm not, I'm not quite sure that his just being sad for his friends is why he is so agitated and stirred up after all, what finally prompts him to go to Lazarus' tomb? In verse 35, he weeps. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. The then, in verse 38, is really a so or a therefore. In other words, because the Jews were questioning the timing of Jesus and his supposed inaction, his supposed uh, lack of love for this family. Therefore, he was stirred up and agitated again. He's becoming a snorting horse. And he goes down to the tomb. I can't help but think of Aslan, about whom Mr. Beaver says, he'll often, he'll often drop in, but you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. You mustn't press him. Jesus is here not to just make sad people happy. Though that's certainly about to erupt out of the tomb. He's here to make dead people alive. And not just Lazarus. He's here to show people his glory on this day and then for all of the centuries that follow. For those of us who have this story. To give us a firm and fixed hope in the one who holds the keys to life and death. When his friends in the village are questioning and doubting, perhaps even as Paul would later say, they're perhaps mourning as those without hope. He's stirred up and he's agitated. You people need hope. And I know that this moment is immensely sad. But it's not the end. And your hope in this moment isn't in me. And I want you to have joy. Not just in the turning of circumstances, but I want the constant refrain of your soul to be that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not just the good circumstances, even in times of mourning, in times of losing a loved one, in times of another miscarriage, 
or another month of infertility, perhaps another year of singleness, another bout of depression, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest in his unchanging grace. Even in all of these moments of sadness and mourning, Jesus is saying, I want you to believe and live on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground of good circumstances, they're just sinking sand. You can't stand on them. There's, there's no place to put your hope and faith. Put it in me. So he walks down to the tomb. As one pastor says about God, never in a hurry, but always on time. And he tells them to remove the stone. People are freaking out because it's about to stink so bad. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And once the stone is removed, he loudly and publicly prays, inviting people to see a glimpse into the unity and beauty, the closeness of the triune relationship. And then he says in a loud voice, I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning him yelling, stirred up and agitated. Lazarus, come out. It's often been said that Jesus needed to specify with the name Lazarus. Otherwise, all of the dead in all of the earth would have woken up and walked out of their graves. But out Lazarus comes. What once was dead is now alive. And if you're trusting and walking with Jesus, perhaps you know of this same experience. The time in which Jesus cried out with a loud voice and caused your dead soul to come to life. Perhaps, maybe not in as striking a singular moment as we see here. Perhaps you came to faith more slowly, but nevertheless, you are still miraculously an alive person who once was dead. And this is why the theme of resurrection is so important for the Christian. It's true that we have hope of a future resurrection, that every cemetery in which Christians are buried is more like a garden and less than a tomb, a place where Christ the King will call dead bodies to life once again. But this is not just some future event. For those of us who are in Christ, by faith, united in his death and his resurrection, the resurrection is ours now. It begins now, the moment that you believe. Remember what Clint read earlier from Romans 6. Paul is trying to wade through the logic of what could be if, if Christ has saved us and removed all condemnation for us, then we can just live our lives however we'd like. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just sin a lot more so that we might get more grace? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might now walk in the newness of life. Newness of life. New creations. Miracles of the Father who has recreated life from death. You've perhaps heard me explain this before, but if we are united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, then when sin and temptation come calling, we can respond with the angels on Easter morning. Why are you here looking for the living amongst the dead? 
Dave Stone isn't dead. He's alive. Man, like Satan, why do you come looking for the living amongst the dead? Gloria Ortega, she's alive. She's not dead any longer. Don't come running around here trying to accuse Mark Sowers anymore. He's alive. Man, Jamie Sawyer, she once was dead. Not anymore. She's alive. Why are you here looking for the living amongst the dead? Praise God, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle of former dead people that are now walking in faith after their good shepherd. Praise the living Christ. Might we see him, behold him, and keep walking after him. But as I mentioned, and in a deep, deep irony, it's Jesus' giving of life that then brings about his coming death. I thought about holding off this little section until the next week, but I think it all goes together. The way that Jesus is actually able to become the resurrection and the life is because of what comes next. So we've thought through the death of Lazarus. We've thought through the life of Christ. And now, lastly, let's see the death of Christ. Since I didn't have Jason read this, follow along with me, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The way the Jewish leadership sees this, what the disciples were initially concerned about has become a reality. The tinderbox, the dry pine forest of messianic expectation has just ignited. And they know that if Israel starts clambering to make Jesus their king, the Romans will come and they will put this thing down in violence and oppression. So Caiaphas, the high priest, he basically gives two options. He says, do nothing and let all the people die. We can let him become king, but then the entire nation of Israel will die at the Roman sword. Or we can kill Jesus and then all of the people will live. We know what they decide and from here on, Jesus is a condemned man. But all this is unbelievable. That God speaks through a man who is opposed to him. Who is opposed to Jesus and who perhaps, other than John the Baptist, might speak better than maybe any other human does in this gospel up to this point. He's speaking of Jesus' substitutionary death. His coming death, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the earth. The sun is setting and night is coming. And it's no accident that Jesus, or that John, has us moving out of Jesus' public ministry at the end of chapter 11. His ministry of signs and miracles and then transitions transitions us straight into the Passover feast at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the earth. But Caiaphas unwittingly 
where John intentionally doesn't just mean that when Jesus dies, now everybody in the world or everybody uh, who perhaps has been born in Israel, who shares Abraham's DNA. Now everything is just cool. Go on, keep living your life. Remain mostly ambivalent to Jesus in your life because everything's good. He died on the cross and as long as you just kind of mentally uh, acknowledge that reality, then just keep on living your life and just await heaven. Jesus has come to act as your substitute, his life for yours, his death for yours, but then just sprinkle on a little Christianity to the life that you have always wanted. No. You think the blind man in chapter 9 or Lazarus after Jesus brought him back from the grave, do you think their life was ever the same after what Jesus had done for them? He's come to make the blind to see. He's come to make the dead to be alive. He's come to turn our lives upside down, that our American lives of comfort, of entertainment and security are no longer our highest values but responding to his call of life and then following the life-giving shepherd wherever he decides to lead us, wherever, because we trust him that he's leading us in joy, we follow him. And we're all weak, weak sheep, aren't we? We're full of pain and securities, grief and loss. None of us have it all together and none of us are following him perfectly, but have you responded to him? Are you alive? Are you confident that your sins have been forgiven and that you have life now because of his death? Are you following him more and more and walking in the midst of his flock? This is a great picture, isn't it? That he doesn't just, he's not just walking around and there's one little sheep behind him as best he can trying to keep up. No, he's, he's leading an entire flock, millions throughout the centuries. Stinky, dirty, messed up sheep, but we're all walking side by side and following our shepherd together. If you're hearing his voice tonight, if you're sensing a desire to follow him for the first time or perhaps in an ever-increasing way, this is God's love for you. Know that God loves you. Measure God's love for you, not in your circumstances, but in your vision of Jesus. If you are hearing him, Perhaps you're seeing him for the first time tonight. Perhaps still pretty blurry. You can't quite make out what he looks like, but you can see the figure of him out there and you want to follow him. This is the love of God. The overwhelming love of God that you are beginning to see and to want to follow. Respond and follow. Perhaps your vision is getting clearer and clearer that despite real loss, despite real hardship, mourning even in your life, you're trusting him. And not mourning like those without hope. The overwhelming love of God. Here is love that conquered evil. Christ, the firstborn from the grave. Death has failed to be found equal to the life of him who saves. In the valley of our darkness dawned his everlasting light. Perfect love in glorious radiance has repelled death's hellish night. That same love beyond all measure, mocked and slain by hateful men, lives and reigns in resurrection and can never die again. Here is love for all the ages. Radiant son of heaven, he stands, calling home his father's children, holding forth his wounded hands. The love of God. Incredible. Our Father, we 
are thankful for your love for us, that you did not leave us in death, that you did not leave us to rot in our tombs of sin and rebellion against you, but that you have opened them, that you have spoken in love, you have called us to life. Father, we pray for those who are perhaps hearing your voice, maybe for the first time or perhaps more clearly than ever this evening, we pray that they would stand up out of their tomb and walk and follow the shepherd in response for the first time tonight. We pray for life where there is once death. Father, we are thankful for your love for us. We pray that you would more and more be our vision, O Lord of our heart. We pray that we might see you more clearly. Continue fine-tuning our vision fixing little by little our prescription so that we might see you clearly and follow you in joy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.